I love angry women because angry women are free. Reading is a collaboration between the writer and the reader. If Michelle Obama had natural hair, Barack Obama would not have won. Biblioteket er det originale internet. Det er det, jeg We need this Europe. And that's why we have libraries. Knowledge. Knowledge is power. Det her er live for det kongelige bibliotek. Stedet, hvor vi samler alt det bedste fra vores live-scene her på Den Sorte Diamant. Din vært, Lise Bak Hansen. Vi befinder os i superreligiøse tider, en slags slutspil, og jeg kan ikke lade være med at forholde mig til den slags truende udsigter, som klimakatastrofe er. Alle bliver skøre. Det fortæller den amerikanske forfatter Jonathan Franzen, og det, der gør folk skøre, er det, han kalder det unævnlige. I 2019 udgav Franzen det banebrydende essay What If We Stopped Pretending? i The New Yorker med undertitlen Klimaapokalypsen er på vej. For at kunne forberede os på den, bliver vi nødt til at indrømme, at vi ikke kan forhindre den. Og her finder vi det unævnlige. Det er bare en af de mange pointer, som Jonathan Franzen kommer ind på i den samtale, du lige skal til at høre nu. Om lidt mellem ham og den danske forfatter, Christina Stolz. Talken er en del af Arctic Imagination, en serie af talks på tværs af Atlanten fra Danmark til Kanada, der kaster lys på transformationen, udviklingen og krisen i Arktis som et stærkt symbol, et mytologisk inspirerende landskab og en geopolitisk faktor. Fransen og Stolz kommer derudover også ind på masseuddøen. Fransens kærlighed til fugle og hans nyeste roman Korsveje, der også hjemsøges af det unævnlige. We're going to talk about climate and the biodiversity crisis this evening, but first we will talk a little bit about your latest novel Crossroads. And I will just give a very brief summary to the people here who maybe haven't read the book. The story takes place in a parish, in a Christian community, in the beginning of the 1970s. To be precise, most of the novel takes place during one day, on the 23rd of December 1971. The novel is about a family, the father Ross is a priest, he's married to Marion, and they have four children, Clem, the oldest, who has left for college, Becky, Perry, and Johnson, who all live at home. Russ Hildebrand, the father of the family, comes from a Mennonite background. Marion, his wife, is from a non-religious household in Northern California, initially quite well off from a family with money. As a young woman, she becomes Christian and remains to be a strong believer throughout her life. It is a book about religion and about family. And why about religion and family? Well, um, family, because I've been accused of being a family novelist, and I decided to have my revenge by finally writing a family novel um, to show what I mean by a family novel, which is a book in which most of the scenes are between family members, and that also follows a family over multiple generations. Um, rather than being a, just a convenient organizing principle, uh, which it has been in my previous five books. Religion um, kind of 
<clears throat> seemed like it was time to write about religion. Uh, what do I mean by that? Um, the whole, I, so, okay, so stepping back, sorry, um, try to introduce some energy here. So I, I initially thought of writing a book that would follow a family for 50 years. And, um, and then I found myself writing only the first part of that and publishing it as a novel um, with the thought that I might die before I had to write the other two novels, and, um, which introduced a certain pressure on this novel to really be a novel and not just the first part of something. Anyway, um, the idea came to me really all in one piece, and it had to do with um, what I was thinking about five years ago in terms of the disappearance of the Christianity I'd grown up with and its reappearance uh, in strikingly similar form in the uh, beliefs, even the dogmas of certain kinds of progressive activism, um, certainly environmentalists, climate in particular, had just really striking parallels with the Protestantism I grew up with, um, but also in, more generally the progressive program, which uh, whose principles kind of flow out of what had been liberal Christian thought 50 years ago, and which is also founded on unprovable beliefs. And so I thought, oh, hey, I'll finally write a novel about religion. I know a thing or two about it. Um, and I started with Christianity because that was still something you could write a novel about in 1971, not so much anymore unless you want to have a bunch of rabid Trumpists who want to control what women do with their bodies and so forth. Yeah, there was another question that I was thinking about. The religious environment that you described, would you find that type of environment today in the United States, you think? It's a similar type of not really. It was it was widespread then. Um, people forget how uh, important the liberal church was in the anti-war movement 50 years ago. How central, beginning with Martin Luther King, it was in the civil rights movement. That kind of Christian activism has essentially disappeared. It is still an important part of the left, the Democratic Party in the United States. And that important part consists almost entirely of African-American women. Um, among white people, people just left the church the same way they did in Denmark, the same way they did across Western Europe. Hmm. Um, so yeah, there are little pockets, like our trainer in Santa Cruz. I have a trainer. <laughs> Otherwise, I would not work hard at the gym. Um, and it, our trainer is, he's a gay guy. Uh, he, he's been out since he was like 15, but he was part of this little pocket of out there youth Christianity in Santa Cruz. There's a specific cafe where, <laughs> which, where all the baristas are Christian and many of them are also gay, um, but that's very rare. It's like you, can, you find that one little speck of it remaining. Mm. Most of it is gone. Mm. Okay, should we maybe hear a little piece from the novel? Uh, I found a piece where Ross is having a conversation with the young widow Frances. 
And um, the piece that Thomas will read is from uh, page 404. And I just want to say before you begin that it's brilliantly translated by the Danish translator Mick Ro. Vil du ikke fortælle mig, hvad der er sket? Det gav ingen mening at forklare, du ikke kunne forstå det. Prøv. Hun lukkede øjnene. Philip siger, at jeg ikke kan tage med dig mere. Jeg ved, det lyder dumt, og hvis det ikke var andet end det, ville jeg ikke. Så ville jeg måske fortsætte, men med alt det andet også er det bare nemmere at lade være. Tanken om, at kirurgen måske var jaloux på ham, havde grund til at være jaloux, forværrede kun Rosses følelse af nederlag. Han vidste godt, sagde Francis, at jeg udførte frivilligt arbejde i byen, men da han fandt ud af, hvor kirken ligger, sagde han, at det var for farligt. Jeg forsøgte at forklare ham, at det ikke er så slemt, men han ville ikke lytte op. Jeg hader at være den, der underkaster mig. Det er ikke sådan, jeg er, men i det her tilfælde er det bare nemmere, for sådan er jeg. Nemlig, jeg, jeg gør altid det, der er nemmest. Det er overhovedet ikke sandt. Har du talt med Kitty om det her? Det kan jeg ikke. Kitty vil heller ikke respektere, men jeg mener, jeg, jeg, jeg ved det. Jeg ved det. Jeg ved det. Jeg er sammen med et dumt svin igen. Jeg ved det. Larry taler næsten ikke til mig mere. Jeg overtalte ham til at spise frokost med Philip. Og Larry kunne se det. Alle kan se det. Jeg er sammen med et dumt svin igen. Et dummere svin, faktisk. Bobby var det mindste ikke racist. Ingen burde have lov til at fortælle dig, hvad du må og ikke må. Jeg ved det godt, og som jeg sagde, hvis det bare var Philip, så ville jeg måske også sige stop. Men sagen er jo, at jeg inderst inden er ligesom ham. Jeg, jeg tror stadigvæk, at jeg ender med at blive voldtaget eller myrdet, hver gang jeg tager ned. Den slags mønstre sidder dybt, sagde Ross. Det tager tid at udvikle nye mønstre. Det ved jeg, og jeg har prøvet. Jeg undskyld over for Fio, sådan som du foreslog, og du havde ret. Det gjorde en forskel. Men jeg kunne ikke holde op med at tænke på Ronnie, hvordan jeg kunne hjælpe ham, og så talte jeg med Fio igen. Ifølge ham er problemet, at Ronnies mor er heroinafhængig. Jeg spurgte, om han ikke kunne få hende ind i et behandlingsprogram. Jeg, jeg tilbød selv at betale for det, og lade ham sige, at pengene kom fra hans menighed. Det rimer ikke med, at du siger, at du ikke er et godt menneske. Men han sagde, at det faktisk er umuligt. Han tror, at Clarice ville begynde at tage stoffer igen, så snart hun kom ud. Jeg sagde til Theo, at der må der være en eller anden plejefamilie, der vil tage imod en sød lille dreng. Jeg tilbyder at tale med en socialrådgiver og sikre mig, at alting blev tjekket. Men Theo sagde, at hvis jeg gjorde det, ville socialrådgiveren aldrig lade Clarice komme i nærheden af Ronnie igen. Jeg sagde, at efter min mening var det måske også det bedste. Men Theo sagde, at Ronnie er den eneste, der holder Clarice i live, og det ville en socialrådgiver ikke forstå, fordi myndighederne kun bekymrer sig om drengens velfærd. Ikke om moderens. Jeg prøvede at huske på det, du havde sagt til mig, og undgå at skændes med ham. Men jeg påpegede, at han åbenbart godtager en situation, som ingen socialrådgiver ville godtage. Jeg sagde, at før eller siden ville der ske noget forfærdeligt. Og Theo trækker bare på skulderen. Han siger, det er i Guds hænder. Og det lukkede munden på mig. Jeg skændtes ikke med ham. Intet af det, du fortæller her, sagde Ross for dig til at falde i min agtelse. Tværtimod. Francis lød ikke til at høre ham. Jeg er ikke ligesom dig, sagde hun. Jeg kan ikke acceptere, at Gud skaber en situation, der er så hæstlig, at den ikke er til at lave om på. For mig er det, som om der er en dør, og bag døren er byen, og overalt, hvor man ser hen, er der en situation så hæstlig, at ingen kan gøre noget ved den, og jeg har nået et punkt, hvor jeg bare ikke magter at åbne den dør igen. Jeg vil helst bare lukke den og glemme, hvad der er bag den, da Philip sagde, at jeg ikke måtte tage med dig igen, oplevede jeg den mest forfærdelige følelse af lettelse. 
Jeg ville ønske, at du havde fortalt mig det noget før, sagde Ross. Ingen situation er så håbløs, at der ikke kan gøres noget. Næste gang vi tager dig ned, kan du og jeg og Theo måske snakke sammen og få nogle idéer. Nej, jeg tager ikke dig ned igen. Det er bare ikke mig. Jeg ville så gerne have, at det skulle være det. Jeg så på dig, og jeg sagde til mig selv, sådan et menneske vil jeg gerne ligne. Det var så spændende at være sammen med dig, men jeg tror, jeg forvekslede det at være sammen med dig, med at være som dig. Sandheden er, at jeg er et jammerligt menneske. Nej, nej, nej. Jeg tænder åbenbart på dumme svin. Jeg tænder på penge, på ture til Acapulco, på at ingen dømmer mig, at ingen tvinger mig til at åbne døre, som jeg ikke har lyst til at åbne. Den tanke, at jeg kunne være anderledes, var kun fantasi. Thank you so much. Did you did you pick out that passage? Yes, I did. I'm curious why. Well, uh, I would actually want you to say something about why, what is taking place, and then I will, I will say something afterwards. What is happening in the scene? Well, the the backdrop is that Russ is trying very hard to commit adultery, <coughs> um, and he's he's gone to rather extreme lengths, and he's. He's chosen a woman who's very hard to get. And every time he starts to lose interest, she interests him, and every time he seems about to get there, she backs away. Um, so, and now this terrible thing has happened because the whole thing they had in common was they were together going to the south side of Chicago every two weeks to work in this poor black church. And she's saying, I can't do it anymore. And that's, and he's like, well, as your pastor, I have to say, that's wrong. You're a lovely person, but it's like, fuck, fuck. <laughs> I'm not going to see her every two weeks anymore. This is the end. So that's really, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, um, and by the way, the entire notion, the, this whole story element is supposed to be ridiculous. It's, it is comical that Russ is trying so hard to be a bad person. And here she keeps saying, no, but you're a good person. It's like, no, 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 I'm not that good. I'm not that good. Um, so that's, to me, that's the important thing. And then, yes, uh, you try to, within the larger, ridiculous, quasi-love story you're telling, you try to actually imagine conversations that have some other things going on in them. Um, And I guess perhaps we could also explain that some of the backstory was that she was her one of her first times she was screamed at, almost assaulted by the mother of this handicapped little boy, and she has taken an interest in the boy. Um, and basically, the minister down there has said, "Forget about it. There's no helping it." Mm -hmm. And can you just say a little bit about Frances? Who is she? She's a terrible flirt. <laughs> uh, my, uh, okay, so... Just a few words. On. Just a few words. Yeah. She's, she's 15 years younger than Russ. She's yeah. an attractive young widow. Her husband was killed in an accident. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, he, and he really adores her. He really does, and... And he's he, obsessed with her, actually. He is kind of obsessed with her. Um, so, 
I do occasionally need to draw on my own real life. Um, most of the book is invented, but there are these little tiny sources, and I realized I'd never really told the story of the 10 months I spent pursuing a woman who is somewhat like Frances. <laughs> and in fact, the line in English is, I'm a crap human being. That's from real life. <laughs> And yeah, yeah. So, well, good answer. <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna quote uh, a little passage from what we just heard in English, and this sure. is gonna be a threat. I mean, you will understand why I I chose this piece. Okay. I can't accept that God creates a situation so terrible. There's not uh, no getting out of it. To me, it's little. It's like there is a door, and behind the door is the inner city. And everywhere you turn, there is a situation so terrible that no one can fix it. And I've reached the point where I just can't open the door again. I just want to shut it and forget what's behind it. This is what Francis says. And now comes my question. Do you think this is a reaction typical of human nature? Just wanted, wanting to shut the door and not open it again? to see what's behind it. Absolutely, and um, you know, it's kind of what happened with the civil rights movement. Um, we did have progress in the 1960s. Um, there was a body of legislation and it really came to consciousness that America has, has to deal with the legacy of slavery and then a century of apartheid that followed that and people got it and there was a lot of political support for it initially and then I think a lot of white people re just had the feeling oh but this is so deep and this is not going to be fixed easily going to a march passing this legislation it's actually not going to fix it and I think that for ordinary people um, you just reach a point where I, I don't want to think about that anymore. And then nationally, we had kind of 40 years where people said, okay, we fixed that. Um, we now have black university presidents and look at all the black people going to Harvard and so forth. And, and look, our schools are no longer segregated. And it was just like, okay, I just, I, I thought about it and I don't want to think about it anymore. I think that's a very common reaction. And Frances, she's just been sort of uh, very disappointed by the fact that she couldn't help this. She wanted child. to be the white savior, yeah. She wanted to be the life savior. Another way to describe her would be the horrible word Karen, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, which has really unfairly become the word in America for the clueless white lady. Um, uh, and I have some of, two of my best friends are named Karen, and they are not Karens, so it's really like, and they're like, really? You had to pick that name? <laughs> um, but like there was this story, I mean, we're just having fun here, right? So there was Two years ago, I think it was, in Central Park, which is one of the great places in North America to bird or to bird watch, um, one, of, one of the Central, um, Central Park birders is this guy, Chris Cooper, um, who's African-American, 
and uh, the nicest person you will ever meet. I mean, I, I birded with him in Central Park. Everybody loves Chris. He's so generous. He's so, he's just great. And, base, and, and yet, there was this woman who was letting her dogs run in a no-dog zone in the middle of bird migration and disturbing all sorts of birds. And he very politely said, pointed to a sign and said, you know, your dog should be on a leash. And she called the police. Whoa. She was being threatened by a black man. Jeez. Um, it didn't end well for her. Um, she was nationally ridiculed, called Karen. Um, I believe she lost her job. So she was, she was totally shamed on social media and paid a heavy price. But it was also terrible, because this is like, that was her first instinct, even now, in 2020, 2021, whatever that was. There's a black man who's unhappy with me, he's probably going to kill me, or at least rape me. That's still the mindset there in, for a lot of white people in America. Mm. And it's very hard to get past. This thing about shutting the door um, brings me to the, this evening's main topic which is climate catastrophe and biodiversity, biodiversity crisis, right? This conversation is part of the program Arctic Imagination, initiated in 2017 with the question, what do we do when the Arctic disappears? Now, we are not going to talk about the Arctic, um, but more about the biodiversity crisis and maybe also a bit about birds. Do you mind? Talking about birds? Oh, twist my arm. I guess I'll talk about birds if you really force me. <laughs> well, I mean, not, not too long, but I just want yeah. you to tell us a little bit about uh, your interest, obsession, uh, passion about love. birds. Love. Well, just love a little birds. bit. Yeah. Uh, well, the really short thing is I, I found my way to birds and I fell in love with them and I keep thinking I'll get tired of them, and no, I never get tired of them. Um, I just love birds. And I really love all kinds of birds, but I particularly love the little brown birds. Little brown birds? Brown birds, yeah. Yeah, that's not a species. <laughs> Although, to the non-birder, half the birds in Europe could, be, could have as a species name, little brown bird. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, all the colorful ones got eaten by people and cats a long time ago, and all that's left is little brown bird. Uh, no, I, it's really, I think it, it's, um, it's as simple as that. It, it, how I came to love birds, yeah. what, the, what went wrong with me psychologically, uh, that that led to this... When did it begin? It began about a little over 20 years ago in Central Park. I, I went there one day in May. Um, I'd gotten involved with a Californian woman, and uh, she loved animals, so I was already starting to pay attention a little bit to animals. And... <laughs> We didn't have pet. Well, actually, we did have pets when I was growing up, but they were teeny pets that could be kept in cages, 
and then they would die, and then they would, and I, then I would not notice it because I'd forgotten to feed them, and then I would discover decaying small animals in cages. So I was really turned off by pets. <laughs> um, oh, and the poor turtle that I didn't put the water in the tank for, oh, it was just like awful. So anyway, I'd kind of turn my back. She opened my eyes, and her sister and brother-in-law are big birders. And they said, you have binoculars? Yes, come to Central Park. They'd come especially to Central Park, as people from around the world do in May, because it is truly one of the best places in the world during bird migration, in the middle of New York City. And they started showing me stuff. And in like three hours, we saw 50 species of bird. And 50? Like 50, 5 minimum. Minimum 50 kinds of bird in the middle of Central Park on a Saturday in May. Wow. Yeah. And it was like, there's something here that I hadn't been aware of. There is another world. And I have just had my first glimpse of it. And, um, and it went from there. So, yes, yeah, soon I got better binoculars. And then I got a telescope. And then I got software for listing the birds I'd seen. And then suddenly I was going on trips overseas to see birds. And it's just gotten worse and worse. And then you became a lister. Oh, I did become a lister pretty quickly. And what quickly. is that? It's something you're very embarrassed about. Well, it's something you should be embarrassed about. <laughs> so, um, what is a lister? A, a, a lister is, so we, we like to imagine that it's all about the joy of nature um, and the beauty of the birds and the, how fascinating their behavior is, all true, and yet, most birders will also, at the end of the day, write down everything they saw. They keep a list. And they'll also perhaps start keeping a list of what they saw in another place or in a given calendar year or in a specific place in a specific calendar year. And so, and so you get lots of lists. And it's really kind of, you feel, suddenly you feel like somebody who's collecting, like needs to get every single Beatles record ever pressed. Which, which is uncool. I mean, it's fascinating, but the person who's got to have that one pressing that, like, and they've, they've found it on the internet and it costs 500 pounds. And, you know, you don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. Okay. <laughs> so kind, the, the kind construction is that the list makes it into a game. It's, it's, of course, it's my love. I, I, I don't have to keep a list. I can, I can be happy looking out the, when I am happy looking out the window, whenever I see a bird, I'm happy. Um, but there's another little game I can play, which is how many species have I seen out that window? And, and I like games too. Apes? Games, mm -hmm. I like games. Okay, well that brings me to the next question. Maybe you will go into the apes, I don't know. In, in 2020, you did a TED talk named Save What You Love, um, and you initiated your speech with the following quote, I'm here on the behalf of other species, end of quote. Right. Yeah? Yeah, it was actually TEDx. I, I am not cool enough to do a real TED talk. TEDx are these little satellite TED weekends. Um, uh, 
And there was one in Santa Cruz that they got like 150 people to pony up their money for. Um, but apparently you can see it online too, so it's yeah. having a life of its own. What did you mean by that sense? Well, I knew what other people, so it was divided, the day was divided, or the weekend was divided into four parts. And, and this was the, um, I think it was generally about climate or the, the state the world was in. Mm -hmm. And everyone was talking about, you know, human problems. And so I just wanted to go out and change the tone. And I wrote my TED talk that morning. Um, and it's, <laughs> and they kept saying, don't you want to practice it? No, I don't really want to practice it. Um, but no, no I, I noticed that you had a different style than other <laughs> yeah, the unprepared style. <laughs> <laughs> no, not unprepared. That was not what I was thinking. But you just were a little bit more relaxed and a little bit sort of, I don't know, different. Well, because oh, it was so, you know, it was so uh, kind of heartbreaking up in the up in the green room. Everyone had been told, memorize your speech. It's important that you memorize your speech. And they were all, everyone was off in their own corner. You could just see them tried to memorize their whole TED talk. Like, what a bad way to go on stage, fearing you're going to forget your lines. Mm. So anyway, I just thought, I thought, yeah, that's the line to begin with. I'm going to talk. I'll be the one person today who might say a word about other species, the other species we share the planet with and depend on and come from and are one of. Yeah, that's where that came from. Yeah. And, and what, is, what does it mean to be speaking on behalf of other species? They can't speak for themselves. Um, most of the losses are invisible. Um, they take place, we, live, we mostly live in cities and city-like places. Or we live in Europe, which is becoming almost biologically sterile. And if you don't encounter the species, you hardly notice them missing. You might notice, oh, 20 years ago, we used to have to wash our windshield when we drove in the country. Now we don't have to wash our windshield. You might notice that. You probably don't. Why? Because there are no insects left. Um, and, and so in a really basic way, if you care about the natural world, you have to start out by saying, hey, you know what, there is a natural world, and it is filled with plant and animal species, um, because it's so easy to forget as we live in a more and more virtual and human-constructed environment. Mm. Well, yeah, that's very true. And you have been speaking about this issue in many different arenas. You've been writing about it, and I think you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it in 2017 that you wrote the essay for the New Yorker uh, about climate change called What If We Stop Pretending? And then it was rewritten and republished in 19, is that correct? No, it was, no? that was written afresh, that was written as a speech um, in 2019, and then I made it into an essay. No, that was a different, I think there was a Guardian essay in 2017, yeah. Okay. Which was different. Okay. Yeah, I, I took three shots at writing about climate change. I didn't, like, set out to be a person who wrote about climate change. It was concern about what's happening to the natural world. Um, concern that a whole conversation about what's happening to the natural world was being really, really radically sidelined because the only issue we could talk about environmentally was climate change. Exactly. Yeah. And in, in this essay... 
You say a lot of different things, but one thing you say is that the goal has been clear for 30 years, and despite earnest efforts, we've made essentially no progress toward reaching it. And a little further down in the same passage, you continue, there are two ways to think about this. You can keep on hoping that a catastrophe is preventable and feel ever more frustrated or enraged by the world's inaction. Or you can accept that disaster is coming and begin to rethink what it means to have hope. I did write that. Sorry? I did write that. You did write that? Yes. And um, what kind of reactions did you receive? I, I'm sure some of the audience in here will know, but can you just tell the people that will not a know really what happened afterwards? So a really remarkable thing happened. Um, there was an absolute firestorm on social media that it being social media lasted 72 hours and then that was over. Um, and then there was... But why were people so angry? And who? Who? Um, it was the people whose business it was to keep saying, oh, we, have, we still have 10 years to turn things around and save the planet. And um, I think even if I published that essay today, I would have encountered less hostility. I think that I think people have become a little more realistic in just three years. Um, but at the time, it was like saying, you know, like walking into a church and saying, "This is not the body and blood of Christ. This is bread and grape juice." Um, it, and you know, just like the entire congregation says, "What are you saying?" It was like that. It was that intensity when someone comes along and challenges the dogma, um, and. And I think precisely because it wasn't written in an antagonistic spirit, unlike, honestly, some of my earlier writings about climate change, which had been a little bit more antagonizing, uh, because it was written in a measured way, it was even more threatening. It was, and, and literally, I don't read the stuff myself, but I think it was the Washington Post's climate journalist the instruction in the tweet was, don't read this piece. <laughs> like, this is so, this, this is so blasphemous. Your soul is in peril if you take 10 minutes to read 2,000 words on this subject because it's so terrible. He is such a terrible person. And that was basically the, the upshot was, we all knew Franzen was a terrible person, and now we really know he was a terrible person. Um, so that was, that was social media. How did you feel about it? How did I, you I was sorry that I, that I had friends who were not good enough friends to know that they shouldn't tell me what people were saying. <laughs> um, but you must have been curious. No. No, you were not. No. No, but here's the thing. The same, so, <laughs> the morning it came, it, it, it landed on a Sunday morning, at, and it was only it was online only, um, and uh, I actually emailed all my friends to say, you know, I have a piece coming out in the New Yorker. I'm afraid no one's going to see it because it's online. <laughs> and by six in the evening California time, I had like a hundred and 
50 emails in my public email inbox. Crazy thing, four were hostile. Four what? Four of the 150 responses were hostile. Okay, only four. Everyone else was saying, hey, thanks for saying that. I've been thinking something like that myself. I really appreciate your saying it. And that slower response continues to, I still hear from people saying, oh, I just found your way to that. Thank you for saying that. So to me, it was mostly instructive as an instance of the disconnect between Twitter, which is what gets reported on, and the way actual human beings respond to an actual piece of writing, which is really different from the way it happens on social media. Um, and yeah, so it was sort of sad, although did not tell me anything I didn't already know about Twitter. But I read somewhere that you said that you, that they, these sort of trolls or whatever we should call them on social media, that in some ways they reached their goal because you felt so embarrassed afterwards? Oh yeah, no, just knowing it was out there, I did feel very ashamed. And why? Did you feel that you did something wrong? Did okay, you do so... Did something wrong? Well, in that piece, I don't think I did, no. Um, I, I did exactly what I wanted. My only worry was that no one would notice. <laughs> um, and people did notice. But um, so I remember I was being taunted in ninth grade English class. At that point, I had two or three friends. Um, and one of them was a friend from kindergarten. <clears throat> And he was a cool kid, unlike me. I was the opposite of a cool kid. And there was this guy in, like, just just to be cruel and 14 years old, he was, he was taunting me saying, Jonathan's favorite book is the dictionary. In other words, he's the, you know, he, you couldn't get any less cool than me. Honestly, you couldn't get any less cool than I was. I was the uncoolest 14-year-old you ever met. But <laughs> um, I turned, and my friend Ben was in the same class. My oldest friend, still a good friend, but not in ninth grade, because I turned to Ben, just like defend me against this asshole. And he sort of smirked at me and said, he's right, John. And it was like this terrible betrayal, and I felt so ashamed. Like, everyone in class is like, I'm the, I'm the weirdo, different guy. I mean, you just feel shame when you're in that situation. And, and to know that people are saying, oh, he's a terrible person, he's a terrible person. You know, even if, well, in some ways I am a terrible person, but not in the ways they're saying I'm a terrible person. But no, but the thing is that, I mean, I, I guess you were not surprised that the right-winged or the ignorant people were angry at you, but people from the left-wing, the environmentalists, the climate um, activists and so forth, they were angry at you as well. And why? Were the right-wing was not angry at me. The right-wing no, was not the New Yorker. They don't it was the left-wing. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Well, because... And can you say something about what, what did you state? You stated something about climate and biodiversity crisis, and what did you say? What, what was it that made them so angry? Um, well, let me think back. What was it that made them so angry? Um, 
I like to think I just said what was true, which is all these, all these things about, oh, we'll keep global mean temperature from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius this century. It's nonsense. Have you talked to a climate scientist who's not an activist and asked what they think the likely temperature rise in this century is going to be? It's not 1.5 degrees, that's for sure. So simply to say that out loud and to say, and you know what, it's probably worse than we think because every time we've predicted something in the last 30 years, it turns out to be worse than what was, what was modeled. Um, the Arctic, since we are here sort of in the rubric of the Arctic. Um, the, the Arctic is warming up so much faster than anyone would have guessed 10 years ago, except for the people who kept saying, oh, you know, there are some feedback loops here. You better be careful of the, the feedback loops when the permafrost melts and the methane goes up and when the, the ice stops reflecting the sun. You know, a few people were saying that, but not many. So it just, it was like, Come on, guys. Really? 1.5 degrees Celsius as your goal? Maybe two maximum worst case? Come on. That's what they were mad about. Because, because if it is too late to stop runaway climate change, then it changes then, 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 well, for one thing, entire careers are premised on the fact that it's not too late. So you have a career stake. You've, you've been an activist for 30 years. You're getting more and more frustrated because CO2 emissions, basically, until we had the pandemic, the little blip in maybe 2008, 2009 because of the global recession, they've just gone steadily up that whole time. You're already frustrated as hell, and now someone is coming along and saying, you know what, I don't really see it. I don't see that, that curve going like that anytime soon, not with China and India and the US and Brazil, and frankly, the European Union doing what they're doing. Um, people, you get mad. You have, a, you have a career stake. You have your whole life has been dedicated to this salvational principle, it really, and that's where the religious thing comes in. It's like you are actually attacking someone's religion. If we feel guilty enough, and because we feel guilty, we change our lives, we might be saved. And if you challenge that idea, if you say, well, salvation, hmm, um, it's threatening. And people get angry when they're threatened. Mm. So, is that what you did that you, I mean, you, you didn't ask people not to reduce emissions and stop? Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. You didn't say that. You no. just said that, well, I mean, we're far beyond, I mean, <laughs> the 1.5, and maybe we should spend our energy on something else. And what was, what was that? Some of, our some of our energy. At the time, yeah. when I first started writing about it, I said, hey, can we also maybe try to take care of the natural world? We're, we're in the midst of a mass extinction event that has nothing to do with climate change. Climate change will make it all very much worse and will begin to really sink its teeth in in the coming decades. But the oceans aren't going dead because of climate change. The oceans are, are going dead because we're fishing them to death. Mm. <laughs> That's, you know, stuff like that. Like maybe, maybe... We, and then, but you read about 
the crisis of the ocean, you read on the front page of the newspaper, the crisis of the ocean, they always say climate change is, is, is wreaking havoc on the oceans. It's like, excuse me, how? Mm -hmm. Like, that's what you have to say first? You have to because that's the religion. The religion means you have to bow down before the all-important climate change. Oh, and then we mention maybe overfishing, things like that. It's... I've gotten carried away. But no, I was, I was by no means saying stop trying to reduce our carbon emissions. But if I can just rant a little bit more here, since we are talking about the Arctic. Now let's talk about California. Um, in greater New York, there is enough roof space to power metropolitan New York with solar energy. There are a lot of big flat buildings on Long Island, and there are a whole lot of roofs. And that's a place that gets a lot of rain. It's cloudy. The sun is low in the winter. Go to Southern California. Um, there's more than enough sun in California throughout the state to completely power the state. How are we going about harnessing the sun? What would make sense would be to put solar panels on all the buildings. The buildings are already there. Like, why go wreck thousands of square miles when we have already wrecked thousands of square miles of city? It would make sense. Right now in the state of California, there is a huge effort supported by major environmental groups to make it difficult, economically almost impossible, to put solar panels on your own roof. Why? Because large-scale solar installations are better. Why are they better? Because the, solar, the electricity company doesn't own what's on your roof. They're not making any profit when, they, when they're, in fact, having to pay you sometimes for the solar energy you're generating. But they will own the big solar array. So in America, if you want to try to get solar power in place, you have to start with utilities. Labor unions also. Labor unions love the idea of massive, like, pave over the Mojave Desert. Why? Because those are all union jobs on, you know, maybe they should be union jobs putting it on, on the roof of house, but right now it's not. So you have this, like, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And, and why are we choosing the wrong way? Why are we just looking at the natural world as this expendable thing that we can pave over without considering maybe there's some benefit to keeping some open spaces. Um, for the birds. Like, well, for the birds, yes, yeah. okay, right. I, I freely admit I love birds, and I have a selfish interest in not no, seeing no. the world go birdless. But, but this is what, I, like, can't that be part of this conversation? Why do we have to just immediately jump to the easiest, politically most expedient um, dumb solution that doesn't take the natural world into account. That's all I'm saying, really. Hmm. Why is every... <laughs> In the TED Talk, you say that we have lost sight of the beauty of the world and the beauty of nature. And you say that now, in our time, it has become clear that we lost the battle against climate change that we just talked about. And therefore, we should spend our resources on resilience, you say. What do you mean by that? What kind of resilience do you mean? All kinds. Can you just 
say a little bit more on that? So, well, I, obviously, we actually depend on natural ecosystems, so it kind of makes sense to put some work and some resources into making the nat what remains of the natural world more resilient, for example, the oceans, um, forests, <laughs> small aside, great story the other day in, about how we are cutting down old growth forests in Central Europe in order to make wood chips to make renewable energy. Um, like, maybe don't do that. <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> but, but more broadly, my contention, which is already, I think, bearing itself out in real time, my contention is that if you have shock after shock, drought, fire, water shortages, or conversely flooding, um, catastrophic storms, uh, wind events, um, if you have these, it's just shock after shock to every system. And that includes political systems. And it has been, long been a contention of mine that the, some of the rise in populist nationalism which I consider deplorable, um, both at home and also in various European countries um, where, it's, where it's really becoming a force. Um, that's a, that's, I think that, that grows out of, in part, a rational recognition that things are going to get very, very unstable. And what do you do when things get really unstable? You, you protect your own. You become kind of tribal about it. Um, and, and I think actually, even though it's seldom spoken of, underlying a lot of the question of immigration in Europe, I think there is a recognition that, oh, this is just the beginning. Um, and, and, and so you need to actually pay attention to your political system because you, as societies become stressed, certain things become important, like fair elections and, um, in the U.S., gun control and, frankly, law and order. It is, we, we, when you have shock after shock, and that is what catastrophe looks like. It's not like a sheet of fire sweeping the planet. That's not the future we're looking at. We're just looking at oh, for God's sake, no more shocks, and here comes another shock. Mm. You, 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 every structure that supports a humane and just society becomes something that actually needs care. You need to think about how to strengthen those systems. So really, it's the entire gamut from the natural world to, um, for my sake, liberal democracy. Mm. And we need to be more nice to each other, you say. And we also do need to be nicer to each other. We have to be kind. That's part of the resilience. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Anything that makes, that encourages people to be kinder, I think is always a good thing. And if you'd like to put that on a greeting card, we can work out a trademark agreement. <laughs> well, I would like to return to Crossroads, not leaving the subject though, uh, but it would be nice if Thomas Levine would read a passage late in the book um, 
a scene that is taking place on the Navajo reservation in Arizona. Do you want to follow or? I kind of know it, but sure. Yeah, yeah. it's up to you. Den moralske sejr var Clydes. Tanken om, hvad den kostede ham, gav Ross medlidenhed med ham. Han gik hen og bankede på døren. Bankede igen. Hør her, sagde han til døren. Jeg vil gerne invitere dig med ned til skolen for at tale med vores gruppe. Vil du gøre det for mig? Jeg er ikke din tamme Navajo, lød stemmen bag døren. For fanden, mand, jeg viser dig respekt. Jeg beder dig om at gøre det samme. Efter et øjeblik rokkede campingvognen, da Kleib bevægede sig derinde. Døren blev åbnet på klem. Du er Keith DeRoche's ven. Det er jeg. Så har jeg ingen respekt for dig. Døren faldt i. Ross åbnede den igen. Inde i campingvognen rådede den enlige mands lugt og uorden. Vi er kommet for at lytte, sagde han. Din dame ser på mig, som om jeg var en klapperslange. Kan du bebrejde hende det? Du fremsætter trusler, du bryder ind på skolen, men du er ikke bange for mig. Nej, det er jeg ikke. Clyde spidsede læberne og nikkede for sig selv. Godt, så lad mig vise dig, hvem din ven er. Han trådte ned i et par støvler, og Ross sendte Francis et beroligende smil. Hun så ud til at være rasende over det, han udsatte hende for, men da Clyde kom udenfor og førte ham ned af den sandede sti mellem fyretræerne, fulgte hun efter dem. Stien var ganske kort, og endte ved et klippefremspring med udsigt over den ødelagte prærie. Stødet fortsat op for minen, og de mellemliggende skråninger var ribbet for træer, livløse, udtørrede og græsset til døde. Clyde stod så tæt på kanten, at Ross kunne mærke sin ringmuskel spændes. Se, sagde Clyde, det er ligesom at se at voldtage min mor. Det er slemt, sagde Ross og nikkede. Det er heldigt land, men det er fuld af kul. Kan du se røgen der? Han pegede mod nord. Det er elektricitet til jeres store byer. Den er ikke til os. Der er ingen elektricitet på mesagen. Vil du gerne have elektricitet? Clyde så på Ross over skulderen. Jeg er ikke retarderet. Jeg forsøger bare at forstå, er problemet kulminen, eller er I ikke har elektricitet? Problemet er stammerådet. Din ven mener, at det der hul i jorden er en god ting. Moderne økonomi, ikke? Vi er nødt til at lave forretninger med bilagarnærerne. Sådan er det bare. Vi kan ikke leve uden dem. Det er din vens ord. Keith bekymrer sig om sit folk. Jeg bryder mig ikke mere om det, om det jeg ser her, end du gør. Jeg er ret sikker på, at Keith heller ikke gør. Men penge skal komme et sted fra. Keith behøver ikke at se på det. Han er nede i Many Farms. Han er ikke rask, at du ved det. Han fik et slagtefælde i sidste uge. Clyde træk på skuldrene. Det er der sikkert nogle andre, der kan græde over. Han tog røven på min familie, og vi er ikke de eneste. Lejeaftalerne med mineselskabet er elendige, og de løber i 100 år. Vi burde få dobbelt så meget, tre gange så meget, og jobs. Min venner går og hedder kulstøtter nede lige nu. Det er den nye Navajo. Peabody fucking coal company. Francis rystede ganske svagt på hovedet og så hverken bange eller vred ud nu. Kun trist som om hun stod foran endnu en dør, som hun var ked af at se åbnet. Hvad har Keith gjort din familie, spurgte Ross. Han havde græsningsretten til hele den her bjergside. Hans kone havde retten på bagsiden også. Vi vidste, at bagsiden ikke var noget værd. Det så du sikkert, da du kørte herop. 
men denne side var stadig god. Keith flyttede og solgte græsningsretten til os, og bang, et år senere indgik rådet aftalen med Peabody. Han vidste, hvad der var på vej. Det gjorde vi ikke. Vi havde sunde kreaturflokke. Det maksimale, som vi måtte have på jorden. Og se nu, kan du se nogle dyr dernede? Der var ikke liv nogen steder. Ikke så meget som en ravn. Over for minen lød et dæmpet drøn. Minen suger vandet til sig, sagde Clyde. Pibber de kunne lukke den i morgen. Der ville alligevel gå 20 år, før vandet kom tilbage. Og du mener, at Keith ikke vidste det? Han læste lejeaftalen, og retten til vandet fulgte med i aftalen. Han vidste præcis, hvad han foretog sig. Ross ville ikke tro det. Der måtte være en anden side af historien. Men hvad vidste han på den anden side om Keith Durochi? Han huskede, at han havde elsket ham. Huskede glæden ved at blive accepteret af ham. Den stolthed, han havde følt ved at være ven med en fuldblodet snapperhåg. Hvad han ikke kunne huske, nu var han tænkt over det her under støvskyen fra den åbne mine, var nogen særlig varme fra Keiths side. Nogen ægte nysgerrighed eller udtryk for varmere følelser. Det er din ven, sagde Clyde bittert. Det er dit stammeråd. Jeg føler med dig, sagde Ross. Virkelig? Kender du The Sharer Club? Det er de skøre... Bilagana, der hindrede regeringen i at oversvømme Grand Canyon. Vi henvendte os til dem for at få dem til at prøve at stanse minedriften. Vi sagde, at vi, ikke ville have, at vi ikke ville have et kraftværk på hellig jord, og de sagde præcis det samme som dig. De sagde, vi føler med jer. Og de gjorde ikke en skid for os. De interesserede sig kun for hvide menneskers steder. So, Jonathan, what is happening in this passage? What happened before? What what kind of oh, well, well, most of the book on? happened before. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, it's a long story, but Russ found himself spending a lot of time with the Navajos in the 1940s, and uh, he has, in particular, one friend, a person he considers a friend among the Navajos, that's Keith DeRoshi. Um, and uh, now he's back with a busload of suburban kids there for a 10-day work camp. And uh, and he's been warned, yeah, don't go up there. Keith said, don't go up there. Um, and then indeed, they get threatened. Um, by Clyde and Clyde's friends, and then Clyde breaks in, steals some guitars from the young white kids, and Russ has gone up to get the guitars back, basically. And he's taken Francis with him. He's still pursuing Francis. Yes. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, however many, that's yes. like a hundred pages later, she's still holding out. Mm. <laughs> it's quite pathetic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing, because you should be. Yeah. Oh, uh, what else? No, no, just, I mean, I chose this passage because of the subject that we're talking about. Right. Um, interestingly, Peabody Cole, um, when I grew up in St. Louis, when we go downtown, 
to the frightening black inner city. Across the river, across the Mississippi River, there was the biggest thing you saw was Peabody Coal, which had a huge coal processing plant. That was the coal they were mining in Illinois, but that was also the same company that had a huge coal mine in the middle of Navajo country, what was then the reservation is now the Navajo Nation. Um, and uh, and that coal, those that and then they built a power plant next to it, and it's exactly as Clyde says that that power all went to Las Vegas. Some of our power in California. I mean, we and we now have solar, so we don't rely on it. But um, you know, I've used power from the Navajo plant in California. Um, uh, so it, it's, a, it's a real life thing. And that, that thing about the Sierra Club, that's real life too. Um, and someone like Ross who, who wants to do the right thing and who's very aware of racism and no, he's, rights. That's right, he's felt good. How does good. he react to this? He's felt good about his cultural sensitivity. He was ahead of his time in terms of his sensitivity um, toward other cultures, his respect for other cultures. He was way ahead of his time. That's, that's been his, his thing in a way, and that's one of the really genuinely admirable things about him is that he is very sensitive. And now someone is coming along and saying, yeah, you've been sentimentalizing mm, exactly. something here. Um, and it's also 19, keep in mind, this is, this is April 1972. That was precisely the moment when the American Indian movement uh, was in force. And uh, there was this younger generation of Native Americans on the res and also off who were just saying, you know, to hell with that. You, you were so proud, dad, of what you got from the white people you didn't get anything. So that, it's just the, it's, it's a little bit of American history, really. That's what's going on here. Yeah, and it takes place in the beginning of the 1970s. And if you should compare with today, the Navajo Reservation today or the environment? Well, the Navajo Reservation today is still a very poor place. Um, and uh, it has been uh, per capita, if not the hardest hit, certainly one of the hardest hit places in America by COVID in terms of both infection rate and particularly deaths. Um, it just got really hammered. Um, and there is, it's not as visible as Black Lives Matter. It's not as visible as the discourse on systemic racism, but I think um, there's a similar thing happening with revisiting what we thought was settled law in the 60s and 70s and saying, hey, you know what? Um, and I, in fact, one of my, I have a friend who actually grew up not identifying as Native American, um, but he now does, which is not an opportunistic thing. It was sort of like, yeah, I guess I better admit <laughs> that I'm Native American. He didn't grow up in a reservation. He grew up with a white family, actually. Um, he is he is now he's working as a screenwriter, and there is very very deliberately in Hollywood uh, an interest in getting Native Americans to write about Native Americans in Hollywood because there's this like hundred year history of white people not only writing the Native American experience but also acting it. Mm, um, okay. And so there you know there's stuff it's 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 it's, it's very much. Uh, 
happening right now, actually, in, and in very, in very positive ways. And so, like, not everything in America is bad. There is, there's some genuine progress being made. to read a passage from an essay that you have written, the essay in Dark Times. I'm actually not as bad a person as what people say on Twitter, but I'm not a great person. I wrote this most of this essay as a speech to be delivered in um, at a prize thing in Switzerland. And, uh, and then I found out that, that one of the uh, requirements was that it be published for free in um, in Swiss and German newspapers. And I'm one of those old-fashioned writers who said, you know what, writers should be paid. Um, it was also published in Danish newspaper. Why? <laughs> because I said, pay me something. Pay me one euro. And they were like, no, no, no. No, no. And I said, well, then fuck it. I'm going to give a different speech. Um, and, so, and this got published as an essay in The Guardian. Um, so, and yeah, just like being fully honest about... Although there was a principle at stake, which is that writers should be paid for their work, for work that is printed. I, at the time, I was like, don't you understand there's a principle at, at stake? But I was being kind of an asshole, too. And the speech I gave was terrible, and I should have given this one. Anyway, <laughs> here's what you've selected for me to read. Not one of the funny bits I noticed. <laughs> but that's okay. I really did want to change the climate, but okay, so that takes some explanation. Um, <laughs> I wanted to make it hotter. <laughs> um, so I'd gotten very upset when people were telling me all the nasty things people were saying about me. And I'd gone to my editor at the New Yorker magazine, and he'd said, yeah, ignore it. It's just weather. You're, trying to, you're not trying to change the weather. You're trying to change the climate, which meant the intellectual climate. Um, so... That is what I'm referring to here. I really did want to change the climate. I sort of pretended, no, I was just writing this for, the, for a person who might want to hear it. No, actually, I really did want to try to contribute to the conversation. I really did want to change the climate. I still do. Well, maybe not so much now. Um, I share with the very people my essay criticized the recognition that global warming is the issue of our time, perhaps the biggest issue in all of human history. Every one of us is now in the position of the indigenous Americans when the Europeans arrived with guns and smallpox. Our world is poised to change vastly, unpredictably, and mostly for the worse. I don't have any hope that we can stop the change from coming. My only hope is that we can accept the reality in time to prepare for it humanely. And my only faith is that facing it honestly, however painful this may be, is better than denying it. Thank you. Christina, why did you choose that passage? 
I chose it because I wanted you to tell us how how do you perceive it today? I mean, this was in 19, now we're in 22. And would you write the same, would you phrase it the same way or would you phrase it differently today? So in fact, that's the end of an essay about essays. Um, <coughs> and, and I was finding fault actually with an earlier essay um, in which I'd really been rather hostile to certain environmental groups. Um, and I was having regrets about that, realizing, ah, cliche, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, um, that, that in fact, um, instead of denouncing people who are lying and who don't understand, instead of doing that, it's better to say, you know, I have some questions, and I'm really confused, and I actually, I'm frightened to, 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 to kind of lead with one's humanity rather than stand back in this really stern position, like many activists still do. Um, you might actually have, a, have more effect um, with a softer tone. That's really what that essay was about. It was about the process of revision and the process of revision for a writer is actually trying to get to a better place as a person. Um, and you, the great thing about writing is you get to do it over. You get to do it over before it's first published, and then you get to do it over again when you try to write about the same subject again. You're, you're actually trying to make some progress. Um, and, and it is a reciprocal relation between the writer and what is written. Um, it, it, it's not magic. I can't make myself a perfect person simply by writing about how I'd like to be a perfect person, but it does have a, there is a back and forth, and that's really what I was, that's what I was saying might be the essence of the essay, which is itself a threatened life form. People don't write essays so much anymore, uh, pure essays. So that was a literary, it was in fact a literary essay using a climate essay as an example of an essay. As a firefighter? Well, yeah, that, um, that, that was one of the metaphors I came to was that. It's a very good one. Yeah, the, the essayist's job, I think I can sort of quote myself. Again, greeting card material if you'd like to speak to me afterwards. <laughs> I could just say the writer's job when everyone else is, is like a firefighter, when everyone else is fleeing the flames, you're supposed to run right into them. And I was specifically talking about the flames of shame. We, especially in our social media world, we go to elaborate lengths to avoid shame. But an essay is Got to run the risk of shame. You've got to go toward precisely the things that are making you uncomfortable and get into them. That's your job, like the firefighter's job. Do you think that, that the consciousness in the States, or maybe in Europe as well, has changed since you wrote that essay? For the better? Um, maybe for the worse? Well, many things have gotten worse. Uh, we have this war. 
Um, it's weird, actually. I've been, of course, well informed about the war, but it was weird landing in Germany um, on Thursday. It's like, oh, well, now I'm on a continent where there's an actual war going on. Um, so, yeah, a lot of terrible things happening. Kind of not the worst year for America, sort of maybe in its own weak way, doing a little bit about the climate situation, possibly setting a better example. Um, we did get some legislation last month <laughs> called the Reduce Inflation Bill or whatever, some crazy thing like that. They can't even, they don't even dare call it climate. That's like, it's the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> it's like, which makes no sense. I mean, like lots of extra government spending. Yeah, that'll really lick inflation. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, I actually, I have, I have noticed that the rhetoric has changed a little bit. Yes, people still talking about, well, we'll all get electric cars and save the planet. Um, just like fingernails on chalkboard. Your electric car will not save the planet. Sorry. Do the math. Uh, talk to a scientist. Sorry. Is it bad to have an electric car? No, it's a very good thing. It's also a kind of virtue signaling. It's also part of the whole religion of climate. But it is, in fact, better to not pollute with your car than to pollute with your car. No question. Not making fun of electric cars. Just the phrase, save the planet. That has become a little less common in just three years. And you much less frequently in the paper I read, which is the New York Times, see the phrase, keep global mean temperatures from rising more than a degree and a half. You don't see that so much anymore. You're much more likely to see the phrase, to avoid the worst outcomes. Hmm. That has become the phrase of choice. Um, that's progress, right? That's like sometime in the last three years, things have tipped a little bit, and actually fewer people are pretending to the same degree they were just three years ago. You still hear we still have 10 years. It's like, but I think, I think the people who are saying that will soon be laughed out of the room. Um, but yeah, I think so. I do, I do feel the climate has changed. I don't take any credit for that. Um, I just got there early so that I could be extra specially reviled for having spoken up first. <laughs> but, and I wasn't even the first. I mean, there's Jim Bendel. I hadn't even read Jim Bendel um, and, and his, you know, this thing about the grief, uh, deep adaptation, adapting to the knowledge that we've basically wrecked the planet. Um, there, was, there, was a there was a large body of writing along these lines that I've subsequently become aware of. So, and I do think, I think the whole thing has changed a little bit. Um, for the better. For the better. Yeah. I just the, the dishonesty level has gone down a bit. Still high, but it's gone down a bit. And is it your uh, do you do you see people changing lifestyles? I mean, like having wild gardens or I mean, do you see any change in the states around you? Um I not mean as the, the electric car of course, but do you ha see other changes? Yeah, uh, well, I, I, 
Not, not in a world-changing way, no, I don't. Um, we do, you know, more and more people do have solar electric on their house, it's California, um, and more and more people drive non-carbon-burning cars. Um, and I think, I, I live in a very privileged community in that it's super, super liberal, and we've been talking for decades about locally grown food um, uh, and organically grown food. Um, maybe, maybe a little, uh, maybe a few more people have come around to that. Not so much, though. Okay. <laughs> well, we actually don't have very much time left. Okay. We have nine minutes to be precise. Um, and I would just like to end this very nice conversation with Crossroads again. Okay. Um, because as I understand, it's the first novel out of three under a common title, a key to all mythologies. Looks like we're going to be ending this evening about eight minutes early, if that's going to be the question. <laughs> yes, go on, go on. Sorry, Christina, go on. You were saying. Well, no, but we were just talking about, I mean, we were talking about your novel and the Christian community in the novel in the 70s, and we're talking, or you were talking about the environmental movement being in some way a, a religious, uh, in some ways anyway, a religious movement. Um, and, and, and now you are actually going to write two more books diving into something mythological and I was just curious to, n to hear what you were going to explore and what is mythology today? This is, this is maybe the time to mention, as many of you know, that the key to all mythologies is a title from literature and it refers to a grand project that was never completed because its would-be author died at a sadly young age, although a much greater age than his very young wife, Dorothea. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah. The, the, mm. You have to take off your glasses. So I'm not really a very conceptual writer. In fact, I'm not a conceptual writer at all. Um, I am a very nuts and bolts writer. I need a story and I need some characters. And the characters are defined by their stories and it's actually harder than you might think to come up with a good story that is a good character. Um, it takes me years and years to come up with just a few characters. Um, and once, I'm, once I have those characters, I'm focused on the mechanics of telling a good story. The important thing is you want to read the next sentence. And once you read that one, you want to read the sentence after that. That's what I'm focused on as a writer. And yes, I start out with the grand idea. And if I hadn't had a grand idea, I might not have made a lot of the decisions I made here. I might not have made one of the main characters a minister. Um, and I might not have set the thing in a church, partly. Um, but it's, once I'm writing, I forget about it. So uh, it could be that we will take up some other versions of more recent mythologies, but it's not gonna help me get the books written, that's for sure. It's the sort of thing you remember at a moment when you're stuck for an idea for the next paragraph. Oh yeah, there was that big concept I was working. I could drop that in for, I can, that'll help me think of something to put in that paragraph. That's really the level. I'm not trying to demonstrate anything because 
I can summarize that concept of evolving mythologies um, in about two sentences on stage, and why would you read an entire book in order to get an idea that I can summarize in two sentences? That's the problem with concepts and novels, in my opinion. Okay. <laughs> Maybe this is a very depressing question, I don't know, but um, do you find it difficult to write in, in, a, in a time of, of sort of the end of the world type of feeling? Do you find it difficult to, to dive into fiction? I know that you do essays uh, and many of them, but do you find it harder now than you did before? Well, because I'm older and I've used up most of my good material, of course it gets harder. <laughs> um, and also, I feel I've established a certain standard and I, that I, I, I feel my work needs to live up to. If I'd established a lower standard, everything would be easier now. Um, you don't have to dig very deep in that statement to find a lot of authorial self-regard, but we'll skate past that. Um, <laughs> uh, no, uh, in fact, Crossroads is a product of the Trump administration, um, and what could be better than going into a world of my own making for six hours a day, seven days a week, and that is 42 hours a week fewer I was not spending in the world in which Donald Trump was president. It was like not hard at all. Mm. Um, but beyond that, you know, we all have these very finite lives ahead of us, and um, and it's important to have your little projects. Like, the color of that room has bothered me for 15 years. It's a pain to repaint it, but this summer I'm going to repaint it. Um, like, that's something to look forward to. We won't hate the color of that room anymore. Um, or... And, and I enjoy being in a novel, so why wouldn't I want to use some of my remaining time to do something I enjoy doing? And, and I actually think that it becomes more important to do the things we care about and to, to do things that ideally are welcome to or maybe even help other people um, in, in that limited time. So, no, I, I, it's, it's this weird, we're living in this weird moment the world, I don't think, is going to end, although the nuclear weapons are still out there. Um, I don't think the world is going to end. It's not going to, like, the sun's not going to explode. But nevertheless, things are going to be really almost unrecognizably different a century from now, or maybe much sooner than that. And it's like, it's like our, each of us has our own individual death really writ large. And, and ideally, the fact that you are mortal, that nothing is going to last, should make you invest more in your, your daily life and in the relationships that matter and in the causes that matter. Um, so uh, to my mind, the impending catastrophes are really no different than the, the, the impending death that we all face. Thank you. <laughs>